I wonder if you've ever imagined what it would be like to hear Jesus preach to you, like in a room like this. Think of it. What's the best sermon you've ever heard? I'm sure some of us have kind of foundational sermons in our lives where, where the Lord in his particular grace swept us up in spirit through a, a normal preaching of a normal man. But can you imagine what it would be like for Jesus to preach to you, for him to come before you, open up the words of the Father, and then explain it to you? If you're a Christian, I think we'd all agree that no one has ever preached a better sermon than the first one Jesus was told to have preached in his own hometown of Nazareth. The point of a sermon is to bring, uh, one, one theologian says, to bring God to man. And then another theologian says it's to bring man up to God, to where they see one another and one melts before the other's glory. Where the point of a sermon is to expose Jesus. And that's what today's passage shows and explains, where the Apostle Luke records Jesus' sermon for us. Because of all the things that Luke wants us to be certain of, is he wants us to be certain of the truth that we can have and that this particular Jesus is the Savior of the world. And he does that through this passage by Jesus' own lips. Now, there are a couple things I want you to see from the scriptures, and I'll, I'll just say things like the text shows us this. And the first thing that the text shows us is that in this synagogue, at this particular time, there was a preacher from God to these particular people. So the first thing I want you to see, which is very obvious, is that our text has a preacher. Jesus was known and acted as a preacher to people. That's a whole lot of what he did. He went around and he preached. Now, there's a couple of things that I want you to see, two things in particular about him as a preacher. He first was an empowered preacher, and we see that in this passage so brightly. Uh, if you look at the text, it said that Jesus was coming to them in the power of the Spirit. We're spoken of he was filled with the Holy Spirit, which in many ways is the foundation for any good sermon. I don't know what you pray on a Sunday morning. I pray that I would be overwhelmed by the power of the Spirit so that even in things that I plan or don't plan, it would be God speaking from his word to you. Martin Lloyd-Jones described this special anointing uh, as a God-given power and enabling through the Spirit to the preacher in order that he may do this work in a manner that lifts it beyond the efforts and endeavors of any mere man to a position in which the preacher is being used by the Spirit and becomes the channel through whom the Spirit works. So Jesus came to his hometown, and he didn't just speak to them. He was full of the Spirit and started to speak to them. As the divine Son of God, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, baptized, by the Holy, or baptized in the Holy Spirit when it descended on him in the form of a dove. And then he went out to face the devil, and the Bible says that he faced the devil being full of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit remained on him throughout his entire public ministry, and Jesus didn't operate independently of this. He wasn't served by his own strength, but he was dependent and reliant on the Spirit's power through him. The same divine spiritual power that accomplished his incarnation here enables him to speak to a people just moments after we see him encountering the devil. He was full of the Spirit. And this, this is a mystery to us uh, as a main secret of the effective gospel ministry that he had. But when he spoke to people, 
it, it often says that he was full of the Spirit. And this is, in many ways, instrumental, I think, for us, where you might encounter someone, and you know you're going into a conversation, and you ought to pray to the Lord to be full of the Spirit as you would speak, so that it's not from your own flesh and blood, but it's from the very words of God himself. Maybe you, some of you are dreading you know, that conversation at the Christmas table. You're encountering that person. Or maybe you've been dreading saying something to your spouse or to your child. We shouldn't go to anyone in our own flesh and blood, but as Christians, we should ask for God to fill us. This supernatural empowering where it seems like God himself is speaking right there. And it was God himself speaking here. But the text says that Jesus was empowered. He was an empowered preacher. Another thing to note here that this text shows as a preacher, it says that he was a local worshiping preacher. He was preaching in Galilee, which if you don't know, that's an area in northern Israel. Uh, This was the region where he was raised. And to be more specific, Jesus was preaching in the synagogues at Galilee. So he wasn't just going around to these area places, but then he particularly goes to this local gathering of believers. Now, I'll spare you the rant. Each town had its own meeting place. And it says that Jesus, that it was his pattern on the Lord's day to go and worship the Lord. You can, you can take all the ramifications from that. But Jesus, on the Lord's day, went and worshiped the Lord. Whether it was raining or snowy or he stayed up really late last night, Jesus himself, on the Lord's day, went and worshiped the Lord. He prioritized going to worship services. He maintained the regular pattern of public worship. It was his custom, verse 16 says. And when there, he in particular, from synagogue to synagogue, His ministry was about teaching the scriptures. So this text is a preacher. But it not only has a preacher, this preacher has a sermon. And this is where Luke begins to show us Jesus' public ministry. There was a lot of building up, a lot of birth announcements, a lot of empowerment. But then what does Jesus do when he begins his public ministry? He speaks. And Luke showcases at the start the Savior in his own hometown about to preach. Again, can you imagine this? What this would feel like or sound like or look like where the Lord himself preaches now within this sermon it's a it's a regular sermon in many ways I hope to show you that it's both regular and irregular but before the irregular it was a regular sermon and this is a fascinating encounter every Sabbath people would gather to worship God at their local synagogue where the center of their worship was reading and preaching holy scripture it was always a dramatic moment someone would take a sacred scroll scroll of Holy Scripture out of its container. Then he would give it to the teacher, and the teacher would carefully unroll it to a passage that he was about to preach, and then he would read from that passage where he would translate it from Hebrew into Aramaic so that people could understand it. And while he was reading, he remained standing out of respect for God's Word. And often there were two readings, one from the law and then one from the prophets. And when he was finished, the scrolls were carefully put away, rolled back up, And the teacher would sit down in a chair on a raised platform in order to signify the spiritual authority that he would have and then teach. Now, in Luke's account, so this is what would normally happen. In Luke's account, Jesus received the scroll from someone, found Isaiah's prophecy where he wanted to read. And this shows how familiar he was with the Old Testament. You should probably know that our scriptures very helpfully have book names chapter numbers, which are the big numbers, and then verse numbers, they didn't have that. In fact, they didn't even have punctuation or spaces between these Hebrew letters. 
Now, if you were going to go, hey, go to Isaiah 61 or go to Matthew 4 or whatever, you would really need to know the Bible in order to find that section of Scripture. And what this in many ways shows is that he loved his father's words to the point where he could just unroll it and go to it. In fact, it wasn't even divided uh, like you and I would have it, but Hebrew scrolls placed one letter next to each other without any spaces or punctuation. And so he found the place and he had intense knowledge of the Hebrew language and Isaiah's prophecy in particular and was not only worshiping the Father in this moment, but he also was bringing a knowledge of the Lord to these people. And this is a powerful example for us. The very Son of God devoted himself to studying the Bible. So rant number one, what did he do on the Lord's Day? Rant number two, what did he do when he went there? He knew the Bible. He loved God's people to be around. So that was a, it was a regular sermon. <clears throat> but it was also an irregular, irregular sermon. What they heard from Jesus that particular week came from the end of Isaiah where the suffering servant spoke about what was called the great day of salvation. If they had been listening carefully, they would have heard Isaiah's promise, liberation, to four different kinds of people. I'll explain them later, but it, it talks about the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. And if they knew their Bibles well, they might have even caught the prophet's reference to the ancient custom of Jubilee, where in the law of God... Every 15th year was a celebration in Israel called the Year of Jubilee. This is explained in Leviticus 25, where it says, You shall consecrate the 15th year and proclaim liberty throughout the, all the land and to all the inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. Now what Isaiah is talking about, Isaiah is reflecting back on Leviticus, so Jesus is reflecting back on Isaiah Therefore, Leviticus. What Isaiah has meant by the year of the Lord's favor, there in verse 19 of Luke 4, Jubilee was the year of exoneration. When slaves were set free from their servitude, it was a year of redemption for people where debtors were released from their financial obligations. Wouldn't that be great? And it was a year of restoration when lost property was returned to its rightful owner. So what Isaiah was doing is interpreting this about a time where there would be a jubilee to end all jubilees. So he's saying there's this mark of every 15 years, but there's coming today, this day of salvation, where there will be a jubilee, a, a joyful time, that'll do away with all this, and it'll be a permanent place of jubilee. So when the people of Nazareth would have heard this, they should have recognized it as a prophecy about a Messiah coming and ending all the, ending all the passages of jubilee to where this was going to be a special anointing. And so he uses the word in verse 18, where an anointed one will come. The anointed one was the Messiah, or to use the Greek word for it, the Christ. Therefore, when God's people heard Isaiah's prophecy, it was supposed to give them hope that one day God would come and save his people. But here, keep in mind the audacity of Jesus reading from this passage, sitting down in the place of authority, exposing what the scripture was saying by giving the sermon and saying all of this has been fulfilled now. He was not an ordinary preacher. So Jesus says today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's in verse 21. Jesus there was announcing the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus is saying has come. He's arrived meaning it's about him. And with him comes all the things that Isaiah promised 
would only come on the great day of God, the good news for the poor, freedom for the captives, sight for the blind, and liberty for people under oppression. He says it's arrived. So you've got a preacher, you've got a sermon, and this sermon is unlike any other sermon that they've heard because of its particular message. So this, this section of scripture has a preacher, a sermon, and a message. When Jesus said the scripture had been fulfilled, he meant very simply that everything Isaiah, Isaiah, I guess I can be Scottish, Isaiah, Isaiah has said was actually about him. He was saying that he was the fulfillment of this text. Isaiah's prophecy identified a particular person with identifiable work and, and it explained what Jesus had come to do. Now, who is Jesus is answered in this particular text. He's the Christ. And that's why we rehearsed it earlier. What does it mean for Jesus to be the anointed? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? And this was perhaps the first time Jesus had declared himself that he was Israel's Messiah. He did this implicitly by, talk, by taking Isaiah's words and claiming them as his own. The Spirit is upon me because he has anointed me. And this was a clear way of claiming to be the Christ, where Jesus was saying that he was the anointed one. He, his anointing was not only at his baptism, not only when the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, but his anointing was when he spoke of all the things that he was there to do, were the words of Jesus from Isaiah with, was him being the fulfillment. And this was shocking. And this was shocking because it wasn't the way that people thought the Messiah would come. They thought he'd bust through the doors and kill all the enemies. But Jesus was announcing himself from the words of Isaiah as doing something very different than what everyone was expecting. They expected an earthly salvation that would bring physical deliverance, a justice revolution. They expected Jesus to be their justice warrior. But some of them wanted him to give poor a higher standard of living, a social revolution. Some of them wanted him to heal the sick, like a medical revolution. And still others wanted him to overthrow the Roman Empire, a political revolution. But he's saying that's not what he was called to do. That's not what he came to do. Now, for, first and foremost, Jesus came to bring a spiritual deliverance from the power of sin. And those are key things that are happening in this particular passage. That's why the word proclaimed is used three times. He's announcing what he's doing to them spiritually. Jesus was sent to proclaim the good news, to proclaim liberty. This is why Jesus told the people that they gathered at the synagogue in Nazareth that day, that Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled in their hearing, hearing this. So he was speaking to them so that they would hear this. And Isaiah was being fulfilled in their hearing of this. They didn't see any prisoners gain their freedom, or they didn't see any blind people recover their sight, but they did hear Jesus preach the gospel. And when they heard it, Isaiah's prophecy came true, where salvation had come by the proclamation of God's very word. And in fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus preached four kinds of people. You see those clearly in the text. The first one I want to bring your attention to is he brought hope through his fulfilling work to the poor. Where it says Jesus was there to preach to the poor. And when Jesus spoke about the poor, he was referring to the downtrodden, the disadvantaged, the, the helpless state of people that they have themselves. Jesus came to give the poor richness. The good news that can be had by trusting in him, they would receive the forgiveness of their sins and the guarantee of eternal life with all the treasures in heaven. Friend, I wonder if you think today you are a poor person. 
I very much understand that poverty and richness is kind of a mental state that you can be in. You know, you may have met really poor people and they, they seem to come across as really rich in spirit. But what Jesus is doing in, in talking about poor people in this case is saying that he has come to give them richness and life. Why did Jesus say that his gospel was for the poor? It's also for the rich, but the gospel is for everyone who is willing to receive it. In fact, later in this very sermon, Jesus mentioned two people who were saved by grace. One poor, the widow of Zephyrith, and then one rich, Nahum of Syrian. Uh, both of them recognized their true spiritual poverty and turned to God in faith. Usually the poor get overlooked, but Jesus said the gospel was for them as much as it was for everyone else. This was not by excluding the rich people, but actually including everyone. And this is how we see that his gospel is for us in our poverty. We are all poor in spirit. We have nothing to offer God except the crushing debt of our sin. But Jesus offers us the richness of his grace. It says in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Jesus announces in this sermon that he came to preach to the poor. And it is to encourage us that even in our state of sin, he is there to lift us up. He also says that he's come to preach to the captives. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is also for the captives. Jesus says that he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive, it says in verse 18. And this echoes Leviticus 25 as well. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Where the word Jesus used for captives in the Greek uh, in many ways refers to prisoners of war. Or people who have made themselves bond servants by entrusting themselves to others to act as a slave in order to pay off debt. So Luke is intentionally using this word liberty or release releasing the captives, bringing liberty to the captives so that you and I might have in our minds true bondage. And the key word for liberty or release, which I think release is a great translation of that verb, uh, is in some versions it's the aphesis that, lingui that linguistically carries a specialized sense of forgiveness. So Jesus is aiming to release the captives, implicitly bringing on the understanding that they need to be forgiven. And when you forgive someone, this is what forgiveness looks like, you actually release them of their debts that they have toward you. You release them of their guilt. You release them of their obligation. You release them of their deserved penalties. I don't know if you've ever had to forgive someone. Someone asks for forgiveness. And honestly, you don't really want to forgive them because you want to hold on to that power that you have over them of they feel really sad towards you. They feel really in debt toward you. They want to be released of that. And what Jesus says he's come to do is to release the captives from their guilt, from their sin, from the thing that is holding them down. He's aiming to forgive them. Luke uses this word, Ephesus, in four other areas of his gospel. Each time its use is of forgiveness. And this is, in my opinion... This passage, I know this is going to sound bad. This passage starts cool, but it really gets cool at this part. You know, a lot of us are not poor compared to other people in the world. So we, we look at that and we go, man, that's really cool. But then we come to this part where Jesus says that he's going to release the captives from the guilt of their sin. And it's like, man, I'm, I'm right there. God, please forgive me for my sin. It's why we 
pray a prayer of confession every Sunday. It's why you hopefully confess your sins and aim for God to forgive us. I think it's normal to say, please forgive me, Lord. You do it to your kids, ask for your brother's forgiveness. Say it with your mouth. Now we'll hug him, act, act like you like it. You know, we do that. But here, the Lord is announcing what he is doing to wretched, awful sinners. He's not holding on to that. He's come to release you from your sin. Jesus says he came to pro proclaim forgiveness to captives, freedom from guilt through the forgiveness of sin. And friends, we, let's be honest, nothing holds you down like sin. Nothing binds you more than sin. Nothing imprisons your mind, enslaves your heart, and incarcerates your soul like sin. And if that's what sin does, then what Jesus did in order to release you from that his very death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. By dying for our sins, Jesus paid the debt that we owed to God and frees us from the captivity to sin and guilt. The gospel of Jesus is for us in our bondage, where we are held by captive of all kinds of, we're held captive of all kinds of evil passions or foolish pleasures or sinful lusts, selfish ambitions. If we were in our right mind, we wouldn't go into that. But in many ways, we see the clarity of the gospel of not only are we in sin, but we keep ourselves in that prison. We keep latching on things around us. And Jesus says, he's come to free you from that. What sins are keeping us captive, what guilt is enslaving our souls, those are what Jesus came to set us free from. By his death on the cross, our sins are totally and completely forgiven. By his resurrection, we have the power in the spirit to resist temptation and live a holy life. In our struggle with sin, we're called to believe in the good news of Jesus, this very good news, that he came in power to release us. So he came to the poor. He came to the, those who are bound. But thirdly, he also came to the blind. This one really captures me because I have horrible vision. Uh, the first time I went to the eye doctor, he knew me, but he laughed. When they put the things up on the screen, they go, can you see it? No. Can you see it? It's the, it's the biggest E they could find. It's only 10 feet away. <clears throat> and so with that in mind, Jesus says that he came to the blind. In Isaiah, blindness is often used in the context of punishment because of the sins that you've committed. You might look at someone, which was done in the New Testament, see that they have some physical ailment. And what was done there is they said, what have their parents done? Meaning, how have their parents sinned to such a degree that their child is being punished? Now, Jesus corrects them in that mind, but the mindset of blindness, particularly in the book of Isaiah, is to enunciate the sin that men and women have. And this is what Jesus came to do. He came to give sight to those who are blind. He came to help see our sin and our need of a Savior so that we would look to him for grace. This is the idea of what is called regeneration, where God goes into a hard heart and he makes it soft. God goes into ears that cannot hear, and he makes them able to hear. The doctrine of regeneration is incredible because it talks about God goes to a blind man and makes them see. You might have seen videos on whatever social media you watch videos on where someone who's basically deaf their whole life gets one of those implants in their ears, and they hear for the first time. Or they're, they're colorblind, and they are given those glasses that look so funny to us, but to them... Oh, it enraptures their soul. That, that is a pale, uh, that is paleness in comparison to what Jesus says he does. He goes to a blind man and gives them sight. 
In the Old Testament, it talks about how he goes to a valley of dry bones and it comes alive. This is what Jesus does. This is not just some kind of social justice experiment of you and I should start a, a holy eye clinic, you know, or a holy get them out of jail clinic. But it's announcing that Jesus has come to blind people and gives them sight to where they see him and they go, you are the Christ. The recovery of spiritual sight is a prominent motif in Luke's gospel. You see in Luke 2, here in Luke 4, Luke 24, uh, twice, where this motif comes to a triumphant conclusion there later in the book of Acts. Acts was also written by Luke. It's a sequel of Luke. When the Apostle Paul announces his divine mission to the Gentiles, to open their eyes, he says, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so we see that the gospel of Jesus is for us in our blindness. Sin is the leading cause of spiritual blindness. It blinds us to the scriptures where we do not see the truth of God's word. It blinds us to our own sin itself where we do not see our need to be forgiven. It even blinds us to the Savior where we don't see the salvation that Jesus has us to offer. We do not see any of the things until Jesus actually comes and cures our blindness. So I hope you see the, the picture that Jesus is demonstrating, that him and the power of the Spirit opens the scroll and says, this is why I'm here, to make blind people have sight. But fourthly, he goes to another group of people, announcing what he is coming to do. He goes to the oppressed. Jesus preached to the oppressed, offering them the same thing that he offered to the captives, release and liberty, where the oppressed are people who are crushed in spirit and shattered by a hard experience of life. Many of you might feel oppressed even now, we're just, it seems like life is a giant, heavy, dense cloud over you, keeping you up. Or maybe in a jolly way, when you are playing in the pool with a sibling or a friend, you dunk them underwater, and you don't let them up, and they have to get this amount of ability to come up for air out of water. Jesus is speaking to that type of oppression, those who are overwhelmed by life, whether through their own sin or the sins of other people. When Jesus spoke about oppression, he was speaking to anyone dominated by the powerful forces of evil in the world, including people who have suffered cruelty of abuse or demonic influence. Oppression is the biblical category for what people today would call abuse. And it describes anyone who's under some type of spiritual oppression, such as the people whom Jesus freed from demons later on in Luke's account. But Jesus cares for the people who are oppressed, and he's come to set them free. One day, you and I will know that all oppression will cease. But in the meantime, God has grace for people who have been wounded by wickedness by promising them comfort through Jesus himself, who comes to the oppressed and gives them freedom. The gospel of Jesus is for us and our oppression. He is our strong protector, and by his grace, we are safe with him. He is the friend of the poor in spirit, the physician of the diseased in heart, the deliverer of the soul in bondage, where Jesus can save us, friend, in every aspect of your need. As his gospel is preached, he calls us to trust in him and be saved. Now, what Jesus preached in the synagogue at Nazareth was a simple sermon based on a specific passage of scripture 
with a single point of application. You're to believe in this Jesus as your Savior. And look at what he says he does on that day. To where you and I, 2,000 years later, can reflect back on that and trust him in the same way that these people were called to trust him. It was the kind of sermon that you and I would expect from a preacher, a scripture-based, Christ-centered exposition that explains the Bible and says and proclaims the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And this was his priority that day, to go into a room full of sinners and to announce to them the good news of himself. And this is what we all need. Now, there are a couple of implications from this. You know, it has one application. I'm going to give you two because we're more needy. The one, one aspect of an application for us is that if you're here and you're a Christian, this text implies to you the gospel that saved you from your bondage, your poverty, your blindness and oppression is the very same gospel that other people need to hear. The, the men and women that would have been in that synagogue that day needed to hear that message. You and I, at a point in time, if you're in Christ, needed to hear that message. That may have been the, the best sermon you've ever heard, where the Lord quick awakened your heart and quickened your soul to see him as the Savior. Friends, everyone else around us needs that sermon as well. You may wonder why you're at a place in an office next to a particular person, having the neighbor that you have, having the family member that you have, having the very kid that you have. In many ways, it is because they need to hear this message. The text implies that people need to hear this message. The same Holy Spirit that anointed Jesus has been given to you to speak the gospel to people. You have the ability and opportunity to proclaim Jesus' gospel to people in your life. They're just as needy of him to be their savior as you were. So God is calling us to be so desperate towards other people in their very need to take them as best we can and to point them to the one who was speaking on that day. Now, if you're not here, or if you're here and you're not a Christian, this text to you shows you that Jesus can save you from your deepest need. I would imagine you could place yourself in one of these categories, spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed, spiritually in bondage, spiritually poor. Friend, that is what Jesus can save you from. He can lift you up from the poverty of your soul. He can release you from the captivity to sin. He can help you see past your blindness. This text for us is remarkable in its joyful announcement to very needy people. And that is what Jesus came to do, to announce the day of salvation, the year of jubilee, the salvation that can be had in him. Let's pray.